Hello everyone, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. Now, Histories of the Unexpected is the show where we demonstrate that everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, and that everything links together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of fleas is in fact all about circuses, the Black Death, Victorian eccentricity and George Orwell. Hmm, that's good. It's also about lots of people dying in Ningbo. Is it in China? If you light a flea, it pops. (laughs) Did you know that? (laughs) No, I didn't know that. No. (laughs) Today... We're not doing a particular theme. We've got a very, very good friend of mine in called Daniel Jameson. Hello, Dan. Hello. Um, Dan is a playwright, and he has helped us turn our ridiculous, crazy ideas, which we've done in our podcast and in our book, into a live show. So, um, Dan, we're going to sort of talk about how you went about doing that. Well... Well, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, It's good good to have you here. (laughs) It's a first, having you as a guest on our show. Well, I'm on it. Here I am. Welcome. Dan, tell us all a bit about yourself. Well, I'm a playwright who's written shows for adults, children, radio, all sorts of people and situations. And um, some of them quite bizarre, and perhaps none more bizarre than this. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, fine. So um, we've known each other for a very long time. We met on a big square rig sailing ship, didn't we, many years ago? Yes, yes, for a, for a company called Square Sail, who owned three big tall ships. That's right. Um... And we, we, yeah, we both learnt how to sell them, became midshipmen, climbed up the rigging, um, drank a lot of beer together. <laughs> and in the interim, I've started writing books, and you, you already were a playwright, and you started writing plays, but you've been, we've both been beavering away in our own little worlds ever since, and, and it was a chance for us to get together and actually uh, do something for the first time, which we're really excited about. So... I, I, I met you this summer when you were soaring the Titanic in half. <laughs> do you remember? <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. That was, that's part, part of the show. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I told you about Histories of the Unexpected, tried to explain what we did and what we do, and then your challenge was to turn it into an hour's worth of entertainment. Yes. How did you do that? Well... It wasn't that straightforward, actually, because one of the wonderful things about the book is the way that it links together, like a kind of paper chain. So there's very clever links from the end of one chapter to the beginning of another. But to try and pick bits out of the book, but then join them together in that clever way, was not a particularly straightforward thing to do. So we retained some of the links in the book, but we had to kind of forge some new links in order to make the whole thing string together like a string of sausages. Was there any any moment where you thought, this is complete chaos, this is never going to work? <laughs> Frequently, yes. <laughs> I, um, I optimistically drew a kind of spiral in my notebook trying to link all these subjects together and the, the page filled up and up till it was just a kind of boiling sea of uh, <laughs> ridiculous ideas and drawings, at which point I became rather dubious from what I thought it would work. But I think it has. So in the show we start with the hand, which yes. which is also is that the first chapter it's the of the first chapter of the book. Is yes. that why you chose the hand to start with, or was there another reason? So I thought it would be good to try and follow the order and structure of the book as much as possible, and I thought that was an inspired and fundamental place to start. You know, everything human and human endeavour and history seems to spring from the hand, as as you you know cleverly put it first in the book. So that seemed to make sense. To be a good place to start. It's something that kind of encapsulates everything we do as well, because yeah. if you say to someone, 
we try and write the histories of things which you don't suspect have a history, like the hand, people go, what? And it's that kind of moment of disbelief before we then go on and explain why it's important, which is so fundamental for what we do. And I think the idea with the hand when we were starting to conceptualise it was that it was something that connected the book to the reader, but simply by the fact of breaking open, picking up the book, breaking it open and using the hands to, to read. That was why we... That, that's really... That's why we started with that chapter, I think. Yeah, I think because you had done some work as well you about when 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 people started holding books to read. So for a while, in certain periods in our medieval past, books were only read standing up from kind of lecterns. And so we, we realised we could do, a, do a, a little history of that as well. But then you, you took the idea of writing is the bit that appealed to you, or typing. Yes. I, I thought it was very clever to start with the hands because, you know, they're something you take for granted. They're, they're flapping away at the end of your arms and you don't particularly think of them very much. So... It's interesting to kind of focus on something that you take for granted, but but also it's a less common mode of communication. You know, you, you might have started with a mouth if you were thinking about communication, but it's interesting to think about hands and typing and writing mm. and art as well. And um, so that also features in that first bit, returning to very the earliest forms of art, which are these fantastic hand shadow paintings, hundreds of thousands of years old. The idea of, of a kind of a, it's a gesture or an idea or a thought, or no, it's, it's an idea and a thought. It's not even that. It's ideas and lots of thoughts frozen in time through a manual gesture. Of yeah. our typing and writing. Yeah, so the book is yep. produced now, but it was, it's full of idea, our ideas that we were having. And I was writing in my shed where we are now two years ago, and that's a slightly weird thing. Yes. Well, th- that's a point you make in the book, and it's in the show. Is that's part of human intelligence that they found ways of sort of freezing gestures in time yeah. with writing and with um, painting and art. So it's it's kind of absolutely fundamental to, to human development. It's fundamental to history. That's how we that's know. The, yeah. So much of what we do is fundamental yeah. history. Yeah. Yeah. How you know that kind of archiving and recording for posterity, which is basically what the book is. Yeah. I mean, so much of of the human experience is drifting through places. So today I got up and I went outside and I came back in again and I I cycled into town. I took my daughter into town. And unless I'm captured on CCTV, no one knows I've done that. And so most of our time, we're kind of like ghosts drifting around. Okay, I might be on CCTV, but no one's going to kind of stop and go, hello, maybe historians in the future will. But you 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 sort of drift in and out of the world, but only occasionally do you do something which which sort of firmly puts you in one location at one time. Even if it with a book, you see, it it's it is one location and one time when I was finishing that chapter on hands, but it's also several locations over a lot of time because I wrote that book in probably a hundred different locations over a year. Yes. I wrote it on trains, planes and automobiles, you know. Yeah. Well, Itinerant craftsmen. But also there's something much more intended. You know, you might leave your trace in the world on CCTV, or, but there's something really satisfyingly intentional about making your mark. I suppose there's that phrase, isn't there? You make, make your mark yeah. in the world, which also comes up in the show later on. Yeah. This, this whole thing about... Um, Mark's been quite primitive in the first instance, so that Shakespeare's parents... Yeah, so you're talking about a signature, early signatures where you made your mark if you couldn't write. Yes. Yes. 
but that within one generation it, it progressed from Shakespeare's parents only being able to sign themselves by making a cross to their son being one of the greatest wordsmiths in the human of all time. time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. One of the in- one of the interesting things moving on from hands is is how the show links together as well, sort of following the contours of the book in that way. So we move from the hand to gloves. And how were you, how were you think, what were you thinking about there when you did that? I think what I really love about the book and what I hoped that you would be able to keep in the on-stage version was the sort of spontaneity and fluidity of these sort of steps that you make from one subject to another. Mm. And, and I think there's several different flavours of those leaps in the book and in the show. Um, so, really, it was just wanting to keep um, a sense of that freshness. And, and well, it's a way of thinking, it's a philosophy almost, I feel, that I've, um, you know, appreciated from your book. So we just wanted to keep that. Well, I liked mm. his way that, you know, gloves, so hands moves to gloves, and you could talk, my hand ends up being covered in paint. And the obvious point is James says, well, you know, this makes me think about when you might cover your hands. And that's, that is a fairly obvious link, that's and it's, it's still very satisfying. Yes. Uh, but we start off there, but by the end of it, um, you know, we've had some great laughs when we say, well, this, of course, uh, well, we went from, we go from watches to, to, hair. to hair. You know, and of course, raises the important question of the history of hair. And everyone just sort of giggles and looks a bit bewildered. Or we Bear go, with us, we, as we explain. <laughs> or we go from the, the smile to the chimney, um, yes. and it gets a bit wacky. <laughs> the chimney to the signature. Yeah. Well, it's funny when you when you mention in a show that you you will or you have gone from watches to hair. I always have to kind of think for a moment. That it's like a kind of magician's sleight of hand. It is, yeah. From one to the other. Yeah. So it's um, what is it? It's memorialisation of objects. So the watch yeah. uh, holds memories, and that leads to your personal memory of finding. Uh, Wellington's hair. Yes, in, so, in a memory box in a library in Oxford. So his hair had been cut to to, to provide a physical object for people to remember the great man. Yeah. By when it all it links back to my, I have a fob watch which was my dad's, which was given to him by by his grandparents. Yes. Um, and you know it does the, the show kind of it it, it it moves from these 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 crazy ideas through others, but um. I think what's really important about it as a historian is how often it comes back to the kind of the very idea of history, which we start with, the idea of freezing moments in time and gestures, because we end, we've got some over here, with our round robin. Um, we get every... As historians, we're completely obsessed by it. We get people to sign sign a document at the end, which we've kind of created during the show, to say we're here. So I'm in my shed now, and I've got the kind of the crazy signatures of several hundred people frozen in time. So that's a memory for me. We can put it on Facebook and remember for them. But also this hair, Wellington's hair, which you found, is that's about freezing a moment in time as well. It's the moment of this guy's death. He's, he's going to be buried. He's going to disappear. But we can catch that moment. And it takes you to the moment where his valet was cutting off his hair or it takes you to the moment where he was selling the hair or yeah. um, to, to memorialise it by. But... That idea, that the watch, we talk about a watch, the Titanic watch, uh, there's, a, there's a watch from Titanic which is frozen in time. So much of it is about about moments being captured in time and us finding them again, which we currently didn't do on purpose, the ch- the but the chi- more I think about it, it is. The chimney. The chimney is all about things that are stuck in chimneys, things that you find in chimneys. So it's the chimney as a as a repository, as an archive... 
that kind of captures those documents, those actions, those those customs. For example, the shoe. You know, what are shoes doing up chimneys? Well, it's all about superstition, and it's to stop things coming down the chimney, like ghosts and ghoulies. But it's it the the survival of shoes freezes in time that superstitious belief. And it's from the moment you put the shoe up the chimney that the devil will not come down the chimney yes. again. So for them, it marks the moment in time as yes. well. Yes. But we didn't do it on purpose. This is the thing that I'm finding really interesting about about what we've ended up doing here. By connecting all of these ideas in different ways, there are themes that may or may not be subconscious ones that James and I are interested in, or you were interested in, turning it into a play, that keep coming up. Well, yes. One of the things that I find very interesting in the book, and I, and I guess that's because you two are interested in it, there, there's a mixture of historical flavours in the book. So there's there's quite mainstream history, but there's also moments where ephemeral sort of or spontaneous gestures are captured in time. So that when perhaps a letter written to Father Christmas that was put mm, on the fire... Mm just by pure chance gets carried up the chimney by the hot air and lodged in a shelf at the back, that that's as much part of history, finding those traces of history as, you know, battles and significant events and the deaths of famous men. Yeah. But I have to say that was a big question of mine in helping you, that it seemed that the differences between a book and a live event is that in a live event you're all in the room together and something is happening at that moment. So it, it is one of those little spontaneous moments of history. Yeah. So what we needed to do between us was to find actions and gestures yeah. that could only happen in a room with everyone yes. together. I think that, that's the thing I found most challenging about doing this. You know, as somebody who's used to sort of read, used to working through the written word and communicating in that way was suddenly... You find yourself on stage dealing with props and images and, you know, working out where your feet go and whether you're in the light. And, and all of that was completely new mm. to me. And, yeah, you were a great help in, in putting that together. But I, I really admire you two for sort of throwing yourself into that river um, because, in a way, it is, it's opening yourself up to the sort of vagaries of... Um, it's sort of live history happening and... Um, Things happen that are unexpected in the show. It's interesting, you know, the, the, yeah, yeah. the name of the book is History is Unexpected. So, you know, perhaps uh, slides might not appear that you want them to. Or, <laughs> you know, you might find yourself not yeah. in the light or somebody says something, responds in a way that you don't expect. Yeah, and you're creating something. It's like, it's like every time we do a show, we're making a soup and we've got a rough idea <laughs> of what the ingredients are. But we've had, we've had soup sits strings of sausages. <laughs> it's like, in fact, it's a culinary feast. It's, it's a culinary the, feast, which, of the unexpected which should be a soup. I think that's, you, you, you will come away well fed. <laughs> and um, you kind of don't know where it's going to go. Uh, but no, I, it's, um, it's it's incredibly good fun. I think people are, are re people are coming up to us and saying, I, I have never thought about the past that way before. So we, we come on with a... Are we allowed to say this? We come on with a, with a trunk. Yeah, yeah. Full of surprises. <laughs> yeah. And then it is a, an hour-long, fast-paced show that takes you through some of the chapters and ideas in our book. And many more. And in, many more. From the podcast. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you did, Dan, was you, you went through the book, you looked at it, 
So you, you said you wanted to start with the hand because it was a good place to start, but also you chose things that would work on stage from your experience of knowing what works on stage. Yes. yes it's looking for actions that can be shared in the room and, uh, or, or just sensual things. You know, we'll distinguish the show from the book. So one of my favourite things, which I was very grateful that you went along with, one of the stories or chapters in the book, if you like, is about how a perfume was preserved in a shipwreck of the Mary Celestia. And this has been refound recently, and scientists have recreated the, the perfume. Or, or they've given the recipe to perfumiers. And I just really thought it would be fantastic for the people in the audience to smell this perfume. Yeah. They all um, go very quiet at that point. It's really it's always a bit of tittering and chatting and stuff, but every, when you pull it out and they go, actually, I've got some, and they, they go very, very quiet. And we let them smell it. Yeah. Well, I think the idea is exciting in the book that a, that a smell can be saved and recreated from history. But then it's an opportunity in the live show to take it one step further and actually be able to smell the smell. But I was very grateful to you two because you actually invested in buying a bottle of this yeah. perfume, which is not cheap and no, it's, it's made in Bermuda. It's like liquid gold. There's only, yes. there's only a certain number of bottles of this stuff that's made. It's quite nice. It is quite... It's citrusy. It's, it is, yeah. Fragrant. It, it's really... It's growing massively on me. Um, but it's part of this whole idea of the... There are these, so these London perfumers made it called P.S. and Lubin, who they were the leading perfumers of the time, and they came up with some crazy different titles. Remember some of the titles for their perfumes? And the, the point about it Kiss is Kiss Me that, Quick, yeah. Myrtle, Ambergris... Frolic. Frolic. Fro- Frolic. <laughs> Bouquet a Poponax. A Poponax? Yes. Frangipan. Can anyone tell us what a Poponax is? Because I don't know. Every time we say it, it's Bouquet a Poponax. A Poponax? A Poponax. A Poponax. Well, I- I'm completely fooled because every time you say it, I think you know exactly what it means. <laughs> <laughs> I've still got no idea what an apoponax is or some apoponax is. Ambergris, oh. we know. Um, ambergris is, is whale. Maybe apoponax is an adjective. Excrement. Well, excrement. Yes, it's, we've done. No, we've it's done not. That, it's, it's, well, it's not even excrement. Well, not excrement it's, it's, it's weirder than that. It's. Um, it forms in a way. So there, there are some whales just eat squid, and there are some bits of squid that a whale can't digest, namely the quill, which is like a spine, and its beak. Right. So the the beaks and the quills of the squids that are eaten get stuck inside a whale. Right, and then all its stomach juices kind of. <laughs> Exactly like that. <laughs> it was a very good impression. Was that a blue whale? No, that's it's, that's the that's the stomach juices. I understand that. Like but grinding up the different things. whales make different the, noises. Um, Narwhal. <laughs> <laughs> the um, yeah. So the anyway, the beaks and the quills get stuck in the gut. The gut then does something to make them go into a kind of a solid mass, but it doesn't get rid of it. What then happens is that the ball of it gets so big that it blocks the intestines of the whale and we think, but we don't know, causes the whale to die. What then happens is that the whale dies, basically because it can't poo out this blockage. Um, And then the whale carcass drifts through the sea over hundreds of miles and, and for centuries sometimes, a ridiculously long time, gets eaten by sea creatures and birds... And then, at some point, the lump of ambergris is released from the carcass, and then that floats about in the sea until it is found or washed up on shore. So that could be decades more. And all of the while that it's being covered up by seawater and being pecked at by bits and pieces, it, um, it, it acquires a smell. 
and it's completely unique. So not only is ambergris a unique smell, but each type of ambergris, each example of it, is unique because it has its own complex history. How cool is that? It's in Moby Dick as well. Ah. Ah, yes. I was reading that this summer, and, um, and I thought, oh, God, this encyclopedic, annoying book of a whale. Uh, and it, lo and behold, ambergris was in it. I, I think everything is in Moby Dick. I think it's a bit yes. like the Bible or something. There's a little bit of everything. Yes. yes. I, I've read it recently, and I was uh, the bit that horrified me most was that they used to cut up the whale blubber in bare feet, and they had these very sharp Ooh, yeah. flensing knives, yeah. like hose, that they would be kind of hopping, slithering about <laughs> on the backs of these whales, trying to chop up, chop up the blubber with bare feet, which um, sounded lethal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what the most common injury is for a for a whaler. We've done the history of accidents. Being we should do the history hopping. of injuries. Ooh, that sounds good. Well, it doesn't sound good, but it sounds <laughs> intriguing, interesting. Um, yeah, so the perfume was good. Um, the, the one I liked most and that we practised and practised and practised so much was the Titanic. And that was your idea, wasn't it? Well, yes. It strikes me that, unless you've seen the film of the Titanic, but even then I think you might be a bit sketchy on the details of how the ship actually sank. And sometimes it's very good just to literally see a, a physical yep. uh, depiction of, of how something happens. But as you mentioned earlier, in the sinking of the Titanic, a significant fact is that at a certain point, the back of the ship broke. It, it, that's right. Snapped in half, yep. yeah. And the ship snapped in half, and it actually sank in two halves. Yeah. So, again, poor Sam and James, I was very glad that they humoured me. We bought a beautiful, they bought, <laughs> at great personal expense, a beautiful model of the Titanic, and we then had to sort it in half. <laughs> that was terrible, <laughs> wasn't it? It was good. It was good. We videoed it. Well, I've always got a thing. Always had a thing for um, uh, saws. No, no, <laughs> shit models. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, saws. And um, yeah, and we, well, the last show we did at, Blen, at the Blenheim Palace Literary Festival, which was which was a smashing place to do a, to do a show, and someone came up to me at the end and said. Who made the model? <laughs> <laughs> and I was did, like, you, did you claim it? Moi, <laughs> out of matchsticks, and it took me a very, very long time. <laughs> that was my father who asked you that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> that actually reminds me of a, a um, guy I was at university with, a guy called Robin. Hello, Robin, if you're listening to this. And we, there was a kind of a there was a Guy Fawkes bonfire night event coming up, and he, Robin had shuffled off and been a bit quiet, and came back, and he said, I, "I've made it. I finished it." I said, what have you made? And he said he'd made an entire model of the Houses of Parliament out of matchsticks and was going to set fire to it. (laughs) Yeah, it was the coolest thing. So this was before the age when you could film it? Yes. So it's just in my mind. But this was... But the the whole idea came about... It was about the history of the watch and it was about a, a stopped watch that had survived in the Titanic. And so we used the watch as a way of explaining, you know, the sinking of the Titanic, the breaking apart, and then what happened to that watch in the individual, Robert Douglas Norman, as he was presumably in the water. Yeah, and there are other examples of stop clocks. There's one from Hiroshima, 1945. Yes. There's another one. There's one from the Japanese tsunami a few years ago. There's, um, there's stop watches and clocks from... 9-11. Yep. From the Pentagon oh, building. And the Twin Towers. And the Twin Towers. And then we talked about Pompeii, the eruption yes. of Vesuvius being like a... Stopped, the, stop, the whole, stop sundials. The whole stop sundial. There actually is a stop sundial. Brilliant. <laughs> but it's like the whole thing is, a, is frozen in time, isn't it? Yes. Hmm. 
Well, thanks for coming in, Dan. It's my very great pleasure. Yeah, and we'd encourage you all to come and see us live because uh, it has Dan's magic touch in it. Just ignore me and James for once and come and come and learn learn from the from a master of, of stage. Dan, thank you so much. Um, and guys, if you've listened to this, listen to everything else, what we've done on 90-something episodes, you can find us on historiesoftheunexpected.com, you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. And, Flickr and um, YouTube. And our book's out. Histories of the other places. very good, I have to say. <laughs> they, they have to bang on about themselves, but I think it'd make very good Christmas presents. Oh, <laughs> bless you. Yeah, I'll give him a tenner. Thank on, you he's so on much. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye.